Welcome to the Acton Vault Podcast, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Gabriel Jaja, producer. We often say right and wrong are vague and hard to know. The natural law tradition says that's nonsense. The moral basics are known to every human being. If this is true, then we aren't ignorant, just self-deceived. So what happens if we tell ourselves that we don't know what we really do know? In this episode, we bring you a presentation that was delivered as part of the 2017 Acton Lecture Series, featuring Dr. Jay Budashevsky speaking on natural law and the revenge of conscience. You can find additional resources in the show notes of this episode, as well as find previous episodes on our website at acton.org slash podcast. If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Vault is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. The classical moral thinkers, both pagan and Christian, spoke of a natural moral law, a natural moral law. Now, this was a, a, a concept that seemed very strange to me when I was uh, hearing about this for the first time myself because I thought, well, nature, you know, that's just stuff. We're all told that nature is just stuff. It's a canvas for us to write our own purposes on it. It has no intrinsic meaning or purpose of its own. But from a Christian point of view, that's not true because it is God's creation. Even from even the pagans, the classical writers, knew better because they knew that things in us have purposes. Even at the most elementary level, the heart is for pumping blood. But you can say more. You can speak about our moral capacities. The mind is for deliberating and coming to good decisions. It is for... Uh, trying to understand what is true. Um, the, uh, the sexual powers are about uh, procreation and about the unity of the procreative partners. All of this is meaningful. Nature is not just stuff. For several generations, our culture, though, has tried to forget the natural law. For so many centuries, it was the spine of Western ethics. It was the spine of the Western tradition of jurisprudence. Uh, people, who, who, people talked about it in all kinds of ways. Uh, Shakespeare knows about it, but we've done our best to forget all about the natural law, including in some of the places that you would think people would try hardest to remember it. One of my students once, who was an undergraduate in a course that I gave on natural law, said, oh, professor, he said after class, he said, I'm really glad to be learning this stuff. This is going to get me all ready for law school. I had to say, I'm sorry to tell you this, but none of your professors in law school are going to believe in it. <laughs> As the Roman satirist Horace wrote, you may drive out nature with a pitchfork, yet she will always return. Natural law here is compared with a donkey. <laughs> you drive it out, and, uh, and, but it's, it's used to the barn and it keeps coming back. Well, it does seem to be coming back in certain ways. Sometimes it's coming back angry because we have not just forgotten it, but we have violated it, and our nature takes its revenge on us, not only individually, but socially. What does it mean to say that there's a natural moral law? Is it really natural? As, you, as I just told you, that was one of my problems. Is it really law? That used to be one of my problems, too. I said, you know, I, I would read some, some of the older writers, and they would talk about the voice of nature or the book of nature. And I thought, what book of nature? You can't read it. It doesn't have words. Now, if you said that God had spoken to you, I would understand it. But nature doesn't speak. So I thought, I thought, how could that be law? Do we really know what it contains? This is a common idea, too. People will say, well, even if there is a natural law, 
uh, and you could work it out through some arcane philosophy. Uh, we don't really know about this. You know, I call this mere moral realism, the idea that there might be a right and wrong, but who knows what it is. Um, what happens to us if we tell ourselves that we don't know what we really do know? That's going to be the focus of the second part of my talk, and that's really the focus of most of my own research on the natural law. What happens when we lie to ourselves like that? Now, traditionally, you know, once I, one of my earlier books on natural law, somebody said, um, somebody wrote a review of it, and it was a basically favorable review. I was just a young scholar. I was glad for whatever I could get. And he, but he said, but you know, this guy Budzyshevsky, he, he the, the same problem with this book that there is in, in all of these uh, books that you read about natural law. They tell you all about how there really is a natural law, but they don't tell you what's in it. So I resolved at that point that I was always going to make a, make a point of what's in it. And the, you know, the, best, the classical summary is the Decalogue. That can be misunderstood because we think, well, the Decalogue, that's not natural law, that's divine law. God told us, yes. But why did it make sense when God said it to the people? Because they already dimly knew it, because he'd already written it on their hearts. You know, in giving the, after giving the Decalogue, God asked the Hebrew people, he says, what other nation has been so blessed, so fortunate, as to have so excellent a set of laws as the ones that I am giving you this day? Now, if they hadn't already known something about good and evil, how could they have answered that question? How could they have compared whether this was a better or a worse set of laws than those that the Babylonians had or that the Egyptians had or that somebody else had? The, you know, they, 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 it would have been a meaningless question to them. But, um, but they did know something. And in, in, in essence then, God was asking them, do you not see that this code of laws that I'm setting you before you today is a more excellent expression a more noble expression of what I have already made known to you by, dimly by other means. Now, this is often misunderstood. It is, um, people may say, for instance, oh, the Ten Commandments, I get it. So everything that's not in the Ten Commandments is, is okay. I can't, um, I can't commit adultery with my wife, but I can, if I'm not married, I can sleep with whoever I want to. Um, I shouldn't lie to get other people in trouble in a legal proceeding. That's what it means to bear false witness. But I can tell all other kinds of lies. Traditionally, though, the Ten Commandments have been understood metonymically. A metonym is a kind of a figure of speech, you know, like metaphor, analogy, simile, and all of that sort of thing. Uh, metonyms are when uh, a part stands for the whole. Like you, you're speaking of the institution of monarchy, but you just say the crown. Well, the crown is only one thing. It's just this thing that the monarch wears on his head. But you use the word to represent the whole thing. The Ten Commandments are metonyms. Only as metonyms uh, do, they or do they succeed in summarizing the natural law. So that, for instance, the commandment against, against adultery is a placeholder, which stands for all uh, sins against sexual purity, and uses as a symbol of them the most extreme kind of sexual impurity, uh, the most damaging uh, you know, kind, which is the injury against, against the order of marriage itself. Or all lies are wrong, but the one that is used as the placeholder for all lies is bearing false witness because it is so, such a gravely serious one. Taken that way, the Decalogue is an excellent summary, not only of divine law, but of the natural law. Now, I said that it, was, it can be puzzling how natural law is law and how natural law is, uh, is natural. So let's talk about that. 
Uh, natural law is law because it satisfies all four conditions for a true law. According to the classical tradition, to be really a law, um, uh, an enactment, uh, a precept has to have four qualities. It has to have four qualities, and if it, it has to have all four. If it fails in even one of them, it doesn't really have the authority of law. It has to be an ordinance of reason which means the mind can recognize it as right. It has to be for the common good rather than just uh, uh, serving the private selfish interest of somebody or other. It has to be made by competent public authority. You know, I can't make a, I can't make a law all by myself. I'm not uh, the representative of, of the public good. And it has to be promulgated or made known. There's no such thing as a secret law. That may, be, that may seem obvious. But you know, it's not really that obvious to as many people. Do you know that, uh, that uh, I was reading that many a large part of the Chinese official secrets law, the People's Republic of China, is itself secret? So that you can violate it and be charged with the crime of violating it and put in prison when you couldn't possibly have known that you were violating it because it's secret. What if you were driving along the street and the policeman pulls you over and say, you're speeding, buddy, I've got to give you a ticket. And you say, but the sign there said, um, said 35 miles an hour. I was only going 30. And he says, the speed limit's actually 20. And I said, but the sign, and he says, forget about the sign, buddy. It's a secret speed limit. Would you say that was a bad speed limit? No, you'd say if it was secret, it wasn't a speed limit at all. In the same way, if, if an enactment, if a decree, even if it was made by the government, fails in any of these, of these four qualities, it, the tradition has said that it isn't really a law, it's a kind of an enacted fraud. It's something pretending to be a law that isn't. Augustine said an act of violence. Now, is the natural law law? Yes, take the, the precept against murder. You should not deliberately take innocent human life. The mind can recognize it as right. That's the first condition. It is obviously for the common good. That's the second. It is made by competent authority. As a matter of fact, the authority of the whole universe, the creator, because of whom life exists and is something good, reflecting his uncreated goodness. And is it made known? Sure. Why? Because mama and papa told you don't ever kill son? Uh, no, we all know this. Even the murderers know it. They aren't in there having, being imprisoned because they didn't know murder was wrong. It was that they knew it was, and they did it anyway. Natural law is also natural. That used to puzzle me. And it, it finally, you know, I, I, I pieced it together. It's natural in the sense that there are four things in our own nature that witness to it. I like to say sometimes that, that, uh, that these, are the, these four considerations are the four witnesses. St. Paul once said to the uh, people of Lustra that he said, um, God has not left himself with witness among the nations. Now, I don't think he was talking about Jewish missionaries, although there were Jewish missionaries. Um, the context of the remarks indicates that he's talking about testimonies to, to his goodness and his reality and his, and his law that are built into the very fabric of creation, built into the very fabric of providence. So what would this mean? Well, there's the witness of deep conscience. It used to be called sundarasis, sundarasis. Um, you know, we're taught today that conscience is just something pumped into us from outside. Your mama tells you something, and your teacher tells you something, and your minister tells you something, and the policeman tells you something. And some of those somethings get in there, and they stick, and that's your conscience. Well, I don't want to say that there's nothing about conscience that is learned, but there is a substrate. There is a power of the mind to recognize that certain fundamental 
shall we say, axioms of right and wrong are true, even if we haven't been taught to them. If that were not the case, how could we be taught anything? When mama says, don't pull your sister's hair, Bobby, uh, how would you like it if she pulled your hair? If the child has reached the age, the age of reason, that makes sense to him. But how does it make sense to him? Because he can see for himself, even though he doesn't articulate it, that it's in itself right to do unto others as he would have them do, do unto him. Otherwise, you could tell people the golden rule until you were blue in the face and they just wouldn't get it. Huh? Why should I only do unto others as I would have them do unto me? Oh, yeah, that doesn't make any sense. Uh, I don't want to do it that way. But it makes sense to us because of that substrate. Moral teaching is like seeds that are planted in the soil, but that's not going to be any good unless there's already some soil there. I call that deep conscience. Then there's the witness of designedness in general. We don't experience ourselves as just blooming, buzzing confusions. We seem to be a meaningful whole. We, you know, even when people suffer crises in which their lives seem to be meaningless, the interesting thing is they suffer that, they experience that as a privation. They say, it ought to mean something to me. Something in them testifies that it does mean something, even if they don't know what that meaning is. That's very interesting. We don't just go through life in a postmodernist way, even the postmodernists do, assuming that nothing, uh, I meant to say even the postmodernists don't, assuming that nothing means anything. We assume that our acts do have some significance. Uh, and that points to something. If, for, for example, it means that the first witness makes sense because if you didn't know that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, you might say of your conscience, oh, well, sure, um, that's just a leftover from evolution. The convicted murderer Charles Delury, who had uh, given his wife sleeping pills and, and covered her head with a paper, with a uh, plastic bag and suffocated her to death, wrote in a book after he got out of prison that he'd suffered pangs of very deep remorse uh, for months after he committed the deed. But he said, it was a, it was a book of self-justification, he said, but that had no meaning because this was merely a primate inhibition against taking the life of your own kind. So you see the second witness, the recognition of the designedness of things, fortifies the first witness, which is our conscience. The third witness is the details of the design. For example, there are two kinds of us. There are men and women, and each of them is incomplete without the other. We need each other. And this is true even of, um, even of people who, uh, who do not marry or even who live lives of consecrated uh, singleness. We have to recognize the need for the other sex too. There is, there, is, um, there, is, there is balance because of this. We're unbalanced apart from it. There is more music and color in the world because of it. We recognize this. This is something that has moral relevance. There is finally the witness of natural consequences. The Bible speaks of it, uh, as you sow, so you will reap. But it, would, but it is obvious even to people who haven't read the Bible. Those who, those who live by knives die by knives. Those who betray all their friends have no friends. Those who lie to themselves eventually can't even keep straight the difference between what they've told themselves and what, what, uh, what really is the case. So there are consequences for their bodies. There are consequences for social relationships. There are even consequences for the structure of our knowledge. Now, conscience is something that uh, is often misunderstood. People think that conscience is feelings. Feelings is uh, it, feelings like feelings of remorse. Oh, I feel terrible that I did that. The feelings are not conscience per se. They are a consequence of conscience. What conscience is, is moral knowledge. 
deep moral knowledge. Uh, you have the feeling of remorse, hopefully, because you know that you have violated the law. And if you didn't have that remorse, there are people who don't have that remorse, uh, and probably every human being has at some time or other done something that he knew was wrong but didn't feel bad about. That's happened to me. Is there anybody here who has never had that experience? Well, so-called sociopaths and psychopaths are like that all the time. But it doesn't mean they have no conscience. It just means they have no remorse. It means they have no remorse. That's different. Now, we all know that conscience works in a cautionary mode. Don't do that. We know that it works in an accusatory mode. Don't do that. What people overlook is that it works in an avenging mode. Oh, you didn't repent for that, eh? I'll get you for that. Well, how's that true? This is a part of the research. Now, I've so far been summarizing without technical language things that all natural law thinkers basically agree about, but I'm now going to share with you some of my own thinking about this. I like to speak of the five, of, of certain objective needs that develop when you have done what you know to be wrong as the five furies or objective things that happen. And, um, you know, like the furies in Greek mythology, they pursue you. And if you don't pay attention and repent, they're going to, uh, going to take their revenge upon you. The, they are remorse, confession, atonement, reconciliation, justification. The normal outlet of remorse, I spoke of remorse, is to flee from wrong. This is the weakest of the free, five theories. Because we don't always, conscience doesn't all, remorse doesn't always come. Sometimes it comes and it fades. We have all kinds of ways to keep from feeling it. A guy, once I was on a radio uh, talk show and I was trying to explain this, and a guy called up and he said, I know what you're talking about. He says, I'm a drunk. I'm on the wagon now, but I'm an alcoholic. He said, and I would drink and I would feel terrible for drinking, and so I would drink. Interesting. Okay, the other four, though, are the, are the bigger sisters of remorse. I think they are inexorable. One is the need for confession to admit what you've done. Uh, one is the need for atonement to pay some kind of debt. Um, uh, and we know what this debt is. The, the, as the Old Testament tells us, and I think as experience confirms, uh, it, the, the, the real price to pay is a contrite and broken heart offered to God. Um, there's the need for reconciliation. At some, at some level, you know that you've broken bonds with God and man, and you have to uh, heal them. And then there's the need to justification, to get back into justice, to, to get back into what is right. If we refuse to pay the Furies their coin, then, which involves repentance, then they're going to demand counterfeit coin. They are still going to demand to be paid. Remorse will drive us not from wrong, but from thinking about it. Like Scarlett O'Hara, I'll think about that tomorrow. Um, have you ever, you know, been in this situation? We compulsively confess everything about what we did, except that it was wrong. I call this the Jerry Springer Show syndrome. Uh, uh, the, um, you know, I married my horse. Whatever it is, we, we tell about all the sordid details of what we did, but we don't mention that it was wrong. You might say, oh, that person is shameless. It's more likely to be because of shame. You, are, you, you have that need to confess, but since you haven't repented, you will leave out the crucial detail that what you're confessing was wrong. You know, in the early days of the abortion movement, one of the modes of advocacy, this shows that the confessional need can even be used to advocate wrong. People would take, uh, radical feminists who were pro-abortion would take out half-page signature ads in which they said, I, have ha I, the undersigned, have had an abortion. Name after name after name. 
Okay, there's the whole coming out phenomenon. It's very, it's very interesting how this works. What else? We punish ourselves again and again, offering every sacrifice except the one sacrifice demanded. It is like a loan shark, you know, because you won't pay off the principal by repentance, by a contrite and broken heart. You have to keep paying off every week, every day, every, every hour. And often you don't recognize what you're doing. My wife was for about 13 years a crisis pregnancy counselor at a crisis pregnancy uh, center. And um, she told me how often things like this happened, that a woman would have an abortion. And she, said, she would say, well, why did you have the abortion? She said, because I was afraid that if I had the baby, my boyfriend would leave me. But then she would have the abortion, and then she would leave her, leave her boyfriend. She was punishing herself. People often begin substance abuse after something like this. They didn't do it before. They, on the anniversary of when the baby would have been born, they find themselves falling in inexplicable depressions. They may knot their fists in, in fury or rage and don't know why. When they see mothers pushing their babies, we punish ourselves. It's terrible. We simulate the restoration of bonds by seeking companions as guilty as ourselves. You see, we, since we won't heal the bonds that were broken, then we, um, we have to invent substitute bonds. Criminal gangs all over the world use this technique. They know that this is the case. And so, in order to initiate the person into the gang, they tell him to do something that shocks even his conscience. The sense of deprivation, of alienation from God and man is so great that it binds them closer to the members of the gang in compensation. Uh, the Nazis used that when in the, in the death camps. They would, the doctors would try to get the other physicians involved in the killing as quickly as they could so that there would be blood cement to the group. That's what it was called, blutkit. We, and we seek not to be truly just. You know the word justification in English, in Greek, both uh, in the New Testament has two meanings. It can mean getting back into justice, and it can, make, it can mean simulating getting back into justice by offering an excuse. All these things, if we don't repent, all these things take on a life of their own. Consider how the justificatory need takes on a life of its own. You say, abortion is, is not really deliberately taking innocent human life because um, that isn't really a human person. Oh, really? Why not? Well, because uh, you're not a human person unless you can make complex plans and carry them out and communicate complex utterances, and the baby can't do all of that stuff. Okay, well, you know, uh, toddlers can't do all that stuff either. Teenagers can't do all that stuff. Uh, some of my colleagues can't do that stuff. And, and so, and so willy-nilly, in, in order to justify abortion, you've got to say that that other stuff is okay, too. Do you notice also you're then setting up a caste system? Because if this is the marker of what it is to be human, these being able to perform these functions, then those who, who perform those functions better are more human. And who do you suppose these theorists think perform them the best? Themselves. Okay, that's very self-serving. This is how that works. And this is why... This is why our culture is going in the way that it is. Sometimes people think that conscience is just a sort of a passive barrier that inhibits you from doing wrong, and it's just getting weaker in our times, and so people are drifting into the abyss. I don't think we're drifting into the abyss. We are being propelled into the abyss on rockets, and it is because of the revenge of conscience. It is because of the revenge of conscience. I'll tell you one more story, because I'm at the end. The... the um, a crisis pregnancy center counselor who I, with whom I spoke said that a woman that she had spoken to had had two abortions. The first time, she had the abortion because 
uh, she was angry with her husband. He had committed adultery. He had betrayed her. She was humiliated. She was mortified. She hated him. And so she had an abortion because he wanted the child. Now then, later on, now she had suffered terrible remorse, by the way, but she had not repented. Now think about the, the fury of atonement. She, the, the counselor said, why did you have the second abortion? I don't know what she thought. Maybe the woman was still mad at her husband. No, the reason she gave was, I wanted to hate myself more for what I did to the first baby. She could, incre- she could pay a greater price because the price hadn't been enough, you see. It wasn't the right price. It wasn't a contrite and broken heart. She could, she could pay a greater price by feeling even worse. She could feel even worse by repeating the sin. This is what I mean by propelling ourselves into the abyss by rockets. And this is one of the things that I had in mind at the very beginning when I quoted Horace's line that you could drive out nature with a pitchfork, but it will always return and it may return angry. There's only one way to escape the five furies. This is true for an individual and it is true also for a civilization. And that is to repent and come clean and throw ourselves on the mercy of God. This option is always open, but it remains open whether we will take it as a culture or not. Thank you very much. Now, um, shall I moderate questions myself or do you do that? How would you like to do it? Okay, then I better put on the right glasses, the distance glasses, so that I can see the people to call on them. That seems like a good idea. All right, folks. Yes. Would I say it's true? I'm going to get down here so that I don't fall off the edge of the stage. You already have seen what I do with slides. So... And this would be not just a slide, but a fall. Go ahead. Yes. Not that murder is wrong because God forbids it. I think that that's a false, false uh, dilemma. I would say that, that, it, that murder is contrary to the good. I mean, some people would say, well, it's only, life is only good because God said so. Other people say God said so because it's true. I think that, that what's being missed here is the classical Christian solution, which is also the classical natural law solution. Um, God is not, it isn't that the good's above God, and so he has to obey it. It isn't that the good is below God, he could, he could make it whatever he wanted. The good is identical with God. He is the greatest good. When you look deeply enough into the nature of the good, what you find is not an it, but a who. Okay? That's what I would say. Yes, sir. The uh, part I wanted to address was about the uh, Furies. And yes. um, I, I'm wondering what the connection would be in the action of uh, projection. Um, that seems to play a part, and, and I'm wondering how you see that in terms of this revenge of the Furies. Is it easier then to project onto others or other circumstances, whatever it is that we're experiencing? Um, yes, I think that's right. I think that there's two kinds of projection. One is that I'm burdened by, by a sense, even if I don't acknowledge to myself what it is, that the burden that I'm feeling. I, I'm burdened and I can't admit, I can't, won't admit to myself I did wrong. 
So I projected onto somebody else. I, I've, I've seen in my own town of Austin uh, on two occasions, cars driving around with bumper stickers on one, one bumper sticker says, I'm pro-choice and I vote. And the other one says something like, save the laboratory animals. You know, see, you guys are the bad ones. You guys, and I'm going to punish you. I'm going to throw paint on your fur coat or something like this. There is also a kind of a thing where we, I guess you could call this displacement. You know, we project this onto something else in ourselves. We won't admit the guilt for what we really did, but we'll allow ourselves to feel guilty for something else that, that wasn't really wrong, um, that, that, that seems less dangerous to think about. Yeah, I think that this is one of the, there are all kinds of psychological tricks that we play in ourselves. You know, Freud, he was a funny guy because he, he seemed to, I, I mean, he was right that we play all these tricks on ourselves, but he was wrong about what we play them about. He thought that the thing that we suppress is libido. It, I look around, do you think people are suppressing their libido very much these days? Uh, I, I think uh, uh, what, we, what, we, what we suppress is our moral knowledge. Uh, St. Paul says in, in the first chapter of the letter to the Romans, you know, it's very funny, he doesn't say those darn pagans, they should have known God, they should have known about God, and, and, uh, and, but they didn't. <laughs> no, what he says, those darn pagans, they did know about God, but they suppressed the knowledge. They told themselves that they didn't, and we do the same thing with the, with the, uh, with the moral law. Okay, how about over here, anybody? Yes, sir. Do you see a uh, correlation between intelligent design and natural law, for, for instance, like uh, law of aer aerodynamics and physics and chemistry, et yeah, cetera? Yeah, uh, I do. Now, there are several ways to think about this. I'm gonna, I'm, when I say yes, I'm going to say design in the broad sense. The theory, the, the theory that is today called the theory of intelligent design is a theory of intelligent design. One, a re, and I'm sympathetic to it, but a reasonable person could reject it and still accept that in fact things are designed. It's, it's design in the broad sense that I'm talking about. Somebody might want to quibble and say their arguments aren't good arguments, it doesn't prove anything, but I think that there is design. Um, now, notice that if you don't agree that there is a design, if you don't agree that, that if, you, if you tell yourself, no, we're, we, we're, we're, just, we're just stuff like the rest of nature, you know, it means nothing. I'm just an animal like the other animals. I'm just the meaningless and purposeless result of a process that did not have me in mind. You can tell yourself that, but the thing is you're still going to have a conscience. It's still going to bother you. You can say, oh, that's just primate inhibitions. They mean nothing but it's still going to feel like it means something. It will speak with the voice of law. So the problem isn't that we, um, the problem is that we don't, we don't recognize, that we don't, we don't, we don't, we don't perceive all of this. It's that we try to tell ourselves that we don't and we cook up theories that don't correspond to even the truth of our own experience. Um, but yes, I think that, that the classical arguments about design, like those of Thomas Aquinas, Okay, one of his arguments is the argument from purpose. We see that there are purposes in nature. Things act for a reason. You know, even modern physics acts that, it talks about that. Ask a physicist or a mathematician about variation, variational methods. Things, things act to achieve a certain state, minimum potential energy, whatever. And um, it's the same in us. There are purposes and, and meanings built into us. And uh, Thomas Aquinas, even before the intelligent design thinkers, held that this pointed to a purposor the, the modern intelligent design argument works in a different way. It, um, it, it starts at a different point. It takes the, the, 
the natural regularities discovered by physicists for granted and then says, given those, could the things that we see like ourselves have, have been likely to originate by chance? And they say, they say no. But whichever way you work it, I think, yes, we're, we're, we, are, we are a meaningful pattern and that presupposes uh, in, in, an intelligence. Yes, sir. Um, so I was invited to this by a coworker of mine, and I've always been a long been a student of natural law. A long what? Um, I've long been a student of the natural law. This is, um, I think, your whole concept of the five furies is just truly fascinating. Um, and I, I would say, I think maybe you wouldn't agree, but I think that to satisfy the five furies in the case of murder is a, is a tall order. That's very would be be very difficult for an individual or a society to do. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of self reflection, um, and so I'm wondering about maybe a a severe but not as severe violation of the natural law, which is slavery. And I've studied that for for a long time. And how do you satisfy the five furies um, when you have committed this hor- horrendous? violation of the natural law. Yeah. Um, and so I was just wondering what your thoughts were yeah. on that subject. Okay, I think really you're, you're, there, there are two questions here. There's the question that you're expressing, which I'll answer, and there's also a question which might be viewed as lying behind the question. You said it's a tall order to atone for these kinds of things. I think it is a tall order. It's an inhumanly tall order. We cannot pay a great enough price. Which is why, I mean, I am a Christian, not just a natural law theorist. And I think that that's why uh, there is the atonement of Christ. I think he paid the price for us, which doesn't exactly let us off the hook because we have to identify with him and experience with him. Uh, our nature has to die with him and, 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 and rise with him. Now, that's, one, that's the behind, the behind the question question. The overt question, how can you deal with this um, well, one thing concerning slavery is this. Is slavery, um, is slavery a, an intrinsically evil so that the only, thing, the only moral alternative available to the slaveholder is immediately stop participating in it? You know, free all your slaves. Or is it, um, or is it merely something that is gravely productive of evil? And this was, the different, this was the difference of opinion between the, the, the radical and the moderate abolitionists. The radical abolitionists said, end slavery now. Don't, t- don't tell me that you want to compensate the slave owners for the loss of property. Uh, we have to do this. If it tears us up, if people murder each other, if you cast the slaves on the street and they don't know what to do because they've never been trained, tough. You know, it's evil. The moderate abolitionists said, it'll, it'll be brought about better if we compensate them for the loss of their property. We've got to prepare the slaves for freedom first by educating them, teach them to read, teach them useful skills, you know, where they can employ themselves, teach them how to, how to do this, and so forth. And so they were willing to permit conti- continuation. Um, I, I, th- I think the problem with the moderate abolitionists usually was not that their theory was wrong. It, I think it was right. You couldn't just, just cast the slaves on the wind. But, um, but the problem, rather, was that a lot of them weren't serious about it, sometimes saying, well, we have to prepare for liberation gradually is an excuse for not preparing at all. And, uh, and I think Lincoln was right. You know, in his second inaugural address, it's very interesting. There were an awful lot of people on the North 
like you, th- you see it in the Battle Hymn of the Republic, who said, the North is on the side of God, and the South is all these wicked people who are on the side of the devil. And uh, Lincoln says in his second inaugural address, the Civil War is God's punishment on both sides for the shared sin of slavery. As a nation, we are responsible for this, and he's using each side to punish the other and bring us to our senses. I think that that's a kind of a, of a sense that our statesmen used to have, but that has been lost today. Okay. Um, yes, sir. I appreciate you and what you've, you're speaking about today. Uh, Thank you, sir. You talked a lot about those who reject the nat- natural law. Um, what about those who, for instance, in the uh, example of keeping the Sabbath, who add to the natural law, and so they're, uh, you know, they're basically you can't take the, the the donkey out of the ditch. Could you comment on that? Yeah, this is sometimes called building a fence around the law. Um, it takes a lot of forms. In, among in some Christian communities, for instance, uh, playing cards might be held to be a sin. Well, why did they think? They were not so silly as to think that it is intrinsically wrong to play cards, but they thought cards, the playing of cards often occurs on occasions when there is gambling and when they're in, in, gambl- in parlors where there are temptations to other things too. So if we want to avoid what really are intrinsically sinful, it is prudent to avoid even something that would otherwise be innocent like the playing of cards. And then what happens is that, that attitude hardens and you start thinking that cards are intrinsically sinful too. Um, well, I suppose that in, that in some, that attitude is not entirely wrong as long as you keep from making that mistake. If I, for instance, have been an alcoholic, I'm not. But if I had been, it might, it might be very prudent for me to build a fence around the law by saying, I won't, even though it would be innocent to have a single drink, I won't because I can't have a single drink. Then if I have one, I'll have two. If I have two, I'll have five. If I have five, I'll just get myself sloshing roaringly drunk. Okay? So I have to build a fence around that. I, I understand that. And, and that, I don't think that that is, that is crazy, but we tend to build re, real rigid artificial structures and insist that, that what may be prudent for me has to be done by, by somebody else too. I'll give you another example of a fence, of a fence around the law that I think is prudent. Um, sometimes I'm asked by young people, usually in an non- anonymous context, they won't ask this to me face by face, but I used to write a column for young Christian people that was online, and it was the imaginary conversations of a Christian professor with his students, and what happened was that people started writing letters to the online magazine. So this led to another column, and I had the imaginary professor answering them. And they would ask me things like, well, what about this? I intend sexual purity, and I don't think that I should have sex before marriage, but my boyfriend's going to be um, visiting um, town, and couldn't he stay with me in my apartment while he's here to save money as long as we don't, don't get in bed together? And I would build a fence around the law, you know, in a, in a sense. I would say, you're crazy. You're, what, you're, what you're proposing is that you're going, to, uh, you're going to turn on all the rocket engines and then say, don't blast off. Uh, so the, you know, the, 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 the motive of prudence that sometimes leads us to build a fence around the law I don't think is wrong. But the consequences of this when it sometimes is, is, is rigidified and we think that, that it, you know, it's just the worst thing in the world if, somebody, if, somebody, if a husband plays, plays gin rummy with his, with his wife. You know, I think that's a problem. Okay, um, let me see. Let me rotate back over here. Yes, sir. John Bolt. Thank you, Jay. 
Um, I'm wondering how you would relate the current climate of finding corporate guilt for all of us in so many different things, you know, uh, sure. white privilege and all of that. Yes. Uh, how does that relate to this question of the revenge of the conscience? I mean, is this, we're not willing to acknowledge guilt for things that are truly sinful, so we project it out, or what's yeah. going on there? Well, I think that's one of the things that is going on, yes. I think it's one of them. But I think that there are other motivations for this, too. Uh, and the motivations vary from person to person. Sometimes it's just a kind of a gangsterism. Organizations will exploit the sense of guilt of other, gr of other groups in order to extort money out of them. Okay? Um, because your ancestors... Or maybe not your ancestors, maybe, I mean, my, my grandparents weren't even in the country when there was slavery, but you're of the same race as, those, as, the, as the ancestors of some people, and so you have to pay money of reparation. And basically, that's just to, 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 to fulfill the budget of the organization so that they can then do other activist things. So there's a monetary motive. There's a revenge of conscience motive. There is sometimes a misplaced but real desire for justice, but it's just a distorted idea. We imagine that, 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 the, that the sin was not the sin of the slave owner, but the sin of the race. You know, that, that, that you should punish people because they share the race. Now, in, in a certain sense, I think even there, it's not entirely wrong, although I, I oppose this, but there's a sort of, an, how can I put it, <laughs> to use a, 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 a $10 word, there's a sort of an ontological basis for this kind of group accusation. Because you know we all, just by virtue of being human beings, do share in each other's guilts, right? We, we share in the sin of Adam, a, a, a Christian would say. Um, uh, as, as, uh, as John Donne said, uh, no man is an island entire to himself. Don't ask for whom the bell tolls, you know. It's tolling for you. This, is, this really is true. There is such a thing as collective responsibility. Lincoln was, was expressing this. But it isn't just this group. If you're going to acknowledge that, you ought to acknowledge that means the whole human race is guilty. We're guilty too. The accuser is even, is even, even shares in the community of nature with other human beings that have done this. And so, yes, wrongs have to be punished, and that has to be an individual matter. But we should also have some, have, have some mercy here. Yes, sir. Uh, given that you're in a, um, a public university and a large one at that, I'm wondering how well received your ideas are by colleagues and, and especially by, by students in, a, in an age of relativity. Well, <laughs> well, it varies. On, on one hand, I have sometimes found myself in hot water in one way or another. Not nearly as bad as another colleague of mine who published some findings about uh, the effect of He's a, he's a sociologist of the family. He's an excellent guy. He, he did a top-flight statistical analysis of the effects of, um, of the outcomes, let's put it that way, because he wasn't claiming causal connections, of the outcomes for young people who had been raised in same-sex families, by same-sex parents, okay? Uh, and they were on just about every dimension. They were bad. So he publishes this. It was peer-reviewed. It was published. In a, it, it, there were even the, even the external reviewers who thought that it was, that it was um, who disagreed, said this is very good work. 
Um, he's got good statistical controls. It's a better data set than anybody's used before this. Well, then the, 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 you know, some bloggers started criticizing him and saying that there must be something bad and dishonest going on, and the university holds a Star Chamber trial and, and to investigate whether he's committed um, uh, some form of academic dishonesty. Well, now, this is very serious stuff. Um, now, my, my colleagues mostly, mostly the, the, sort of the view is that you can deal with people you know, like me and people like him by, you don't have to necessarily attack, but you can, you can do like what the body does when you have tuberculosis. You know, it, it, the body tries to isolate all those, all those germs in little tubercules. <laughs> and, you know, so you just try to isolate people and try to ignore them. And you might have a sort of a vague sort of tolerance if some student says, I'm interested in religion and politics. You might say, oh, Budzhyshevsky studies that kind of thing. You might go talk to him. <laughs> yes. Um, so at times it's, it's a relatively benign indifference, and at times it can become pretty virulent. Um, it's funny though, people will confess, when, when, when other people can't hear them, they will confess some pretty strange things to you. Um, a, a radically atheistic colleague of mine read my own account of my own conversion, reconversion to Christian faith. I'd abandoned my faith as a young man. And um, he spoke to me afterward. He said it had really rocked him and made him re-examine a lot of things. He didn't. He didn't you didn't convert, but, um, but he confessed that. He probably wouldn't have confessed that in front of other people. Students will come in during office hours and ask questions. Can we talk about God? You know, that they wouldn't have necessarily raised in the classroom. But on the other hand, they might get angry too. I, I once, just because I was trying to come up with an example of a controversial issue in order to explain why the Federalists, the, uh, the people who wrote the U.S. Constitution and defended it, were concerned about the influence of passion in politics. I said, can you come up with an example of an issue that arouses passion? It was an eight o'clock class. They were too groggy. <laughs> I said, I, I, I sort of gave in. I said, would you like me to suggest one? They said, yeah. I, I said, uh, I said hey, did you know that Congress, this was some years ago, is debating partial birth abortion? I said, did you know what partial birth abortion is? I mean, they were really, they were really tired. It was, they, weren't, they weren't stupid. It was just they were, they were tired. And so I said, I gave a one-sentence, very clinical, not morally loaded definition of what the procedure was. A student, a student at the side of the room, an older returning student, she was in her 30s, I think, starts screaming at the top of her lungs. And it took me a few seconds to even realize that the scream was articulate, that there were words in it. She was saying, um, she was saying it's only done to save the life of the mother. And so I said, well, you know, one person did say that in his testimony before, before the congressional committee, but he, an abortionist, but he admitted afterward that he had perjured himself. Well, then she was screaming louder. So I turned to the class and I said, now you know why the, why the Federalists were concerned about passion and politics, and she turned off like a light. It was very interesting. Uh, so there's another time, a student said, we were reading about, they'd just read, they'd read Aristotle, then they'd read Thomas Aquinas, next we were gonna read John Locke, they'd read Thomas Aquinas. They understood about natural teleology. One of them was interested in the teleology of sex. You know, the purposes built into it. He said, what would Thomas Aquinas say about, and he mentioned a certain sexual act. Um, I don't even like to answer questions like that because often you're being baited, right? But, but, I, but I, so I said, well, what do you think he would have said? You've learned enough. You can work out the argument. 
and they all discussed it, and it was really one of the more successful occasions I'd had. They, they worked out, yes, oh, it would be this because of this because of this. Oh, yes, I see that. Okay, and then a woman starts crying in the, in the front row because she says, this is also judgmental. And I said, well, you know, if this is true, if the nobody's being judged here, if the argument is true, then it would be an act of love to say this so that people could be warned, so that they wouldn't hurt themselves, they wouldn't damage themselves emotionally, psychologically, physically. Wouldn't that be true? And, uh, but she just kept saying this, and I realized afterward that it was like, this, like the screaming lady. This was, the tears were manipulative. It was strategic. So those things will happen. But on the other hand, somebody may then may speak to you after class and say, I'm so glad that I heard you say this about moral law in class today because I've been taught all my life that moral laws are just irrational taboos, and I always felt like there must be something more, and you're telling me there is and that there's a rational account that can be given of this. So it depends. It depends. It's a, it's a, it can be a, you know, the modern secular university is a sort of, it can be a sort of a wasteland, but on the other hand, sometimes you feel like a missionary out to the, out to the Hottentots or something, and some of the Hottentots will listen. All right, we've got time for one more question. Okay, uh, this, this, this fellow wants to, uh, seems to have a, uh, a burning one. <laughs> I'm a pastor okay. in, in Holland, Michigan. Okay, I've the been there. Oh, good. And uh, I was just wanting you to answer this question. Do you see resistance within branches of Christianity or denominations oh, yes. to natural law? And if so, how and why? Yes, I do. And I've, I've actually addressed them in uh, criticism by criticism. From um, from from various uh, kinds of kinds of Christians, um, it's funny because you'll be told, "Well, natural law is not in the Bible. You're not being faithful to the Word of God, sola scriptura." And I'll say, "But natural, but the Scriptures themselves testify to the natural law. If you want to be true to the Scriptures, then you've got to believe in natural law." Um, First witness, deep conscience. Read what Paul says about the law written on the heart. Uh, second witness, the designedness of things in general. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. Third witness, um, uh, the details of the design. Read what St. Paul says about natural and unnatural sex in Romans 1. Um, fourth witness, natural consequences. As a man sows, so he will, so he will reap. This is all biblical, too. Those are the four witnesses to the natural law. The, the Bible doesn't have to use the, the philosophical expression, natural law. But, but, and then sometimes people say, oh, okay, you know, uh, that, that makes sense. Other people will say, there's no natural law because man has sinned so badly that he doesn't know a darn thing anymore. Now, often people will say that in the name of Calvin, but you know, that's not what Calvin said. It's very interesting. Calvin, I did, I did actually a search through all of his works, his scriptural commentaries and all sorts of things, the institutes, and discovered Calvin refers to the natural law not just one or two times, dozens of times. He gives a natural law justification for the prohibition of incest, for the obligations of spouses to each other, for the obligation of children to honor parents, for the obligations of parents to take care of children, for the obligation to keep your promises, for, the, for, the, you know, for this, for this, for this, for this. He says, he says it's all the natural law. And he acknowledges that the pagans knew it too. This is why they were able to come up with some fairly decent codes of law at times. He said even though they, you know, they, there were real problems in their pagan societies. People will say sometimes, but because we fell, we don't, you're talking about natural law, 
you're only paying attention to nature as it was created and you're not looking at um, nature as it is fallen and nature redeemed. You know, you have to look in historical. Well, the natural law tradition has always insisted that you have to view uh, the natural law in the context of, the, of salvation history, of creation, fall, and redemption. But it's a mistake to say that um, we don't have our original nature anymore, that that's what the fall means, and then now we have some other kind of thing called a sin nature. The idea that there could be an intrinsically evil nature is, it's, is, is, is a Christian heresy, and John Calvin thought it was himself. He says that it's Manichaean. So although oftentimes these criticisms come, not always, but sometimes in the name of John Calvin, John Calvin actually rejected this stuff. So, so I do get a lot of this pushback. Sometimes I've had more hostile reactions to natural law when I'm speaking at, let's say, a Christian college campus than I have at speaking at a secular college campus. But I, I think that there is, the good side of the story is there's a great reawakening of interest in the natural law. In the Reformed community, in the Lutheran community, at least theologically conservative Lutherans, in the evangelical community, a book on natural law and evangelical political thought was released a couple of years ago, as well as among uh, Roman Catholics. And, uh, and there's been a lot more ecumenical discussion among the communities about this, also including Jews. Rabbi David Novak has had extremely interesting things to say about, about natural law. There are a few Muslim writers who are talking about natural law now. I, I would like to see that continue because otherwise we're going to have no chance of real dialogue here and, uh, and, and combating things like, um, like uh, terroristic destruction of the innocent. So there is, there is an increase of interest in this sort of thing. Please thank Dr. Budashevsky. Okay. Thank you. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you like to hear more of. If you're familiar with our past content or have attended an Acton event and would like to see it in a future episode, you can email us at producer at Until next week, for Acton Vault, I'm Gabriel Zsa. Zsa. <laughs>